Chapter Forty Five, Part Two of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P. T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 45, A Story Chapter, Part 2. Let me give you an illustration of a practical joke, which is quite professional as well as practical with the operator, and in nine cases out of ten, no doubt, profitable with all. When I was in Paris in 1845, there came one day to my room in the Hotel Bedford, where I was staying, a smart little Frenchman with a case of instruments under his arm. He announced himself as a chiropodist. He announced himself as a chiropodist, who could instantly remove the worst corns, not only without pain, but he promised by means of a mysterious liniment in his possession to immediately heal the spot from which he removed the corn. Now I had not a corn on my feet, but willing to test his wonderful powers, I told him to examine my left foot and to remove a troublesome corn on the little toe. Surely enough he did remove and exhibit such a corn as I am sure would have prevented my walking, had I known that I was so grievously affected. He then poured some of his red oil on the toe, and triumphantly showed me that the place had already entirely healed. Pretending to be delighted with his skill, I held out another toe for operation, and watching him carefully, I saw him slip a manufactured corn into his oil bottle, which, after fumbling a while and pretending to pare the unoffending toe, he extracted. More delighted than ever, I rang the bell and told the servant to send up the landlord, as I wished him to witness the extraordinary skill of the corn doctor. The landlord arrived, and after a few words of eulogy upon the chiropodist, I submitted another healthy toe, and forth came another monstrous corn, for the same process of extraction, with the same results, could have been performed on the foot of a marble statue. It was now my turn to operate, so I rose and bolted the door, and took off my coat telling the doctor that I greatly admired his gold-mounted instruments and the brazen impudence with which he swindled the public, but that this time he had caught a tartar, and that he could not leave the room till he had been searched. The quack bustled up in grand style at what he termed my ungentlemanly behavior, and threatened if I touched him to bring me before the tribunal. I remarked that I rather thought the tribunal was the last place on earth at which he desired to appear, and then assuring the landlord that the fellow was an errant impostor, and that if he would assist me in searching him, 
I would prove it, and warrant that no harm should come to the searchers. He consented, and collared the chiropodist. The fellow, seeing that we were resolved, quietly submitted. We first searched his pockets, and found nothing. But on examining his Morocco instrument case, we discovered a drawer in which were eighty ready-made corns and a small piece of horn, which furnished the raw material for the manufacture. Fortunately, my right foot was not bare, and I forthwith gave the chiropodist a lesson in the shape of a warm visitation of shoe leather, which sent him flying downstairs, where the dose was doubled by an attentive servant till the chiropodist reached the street. He did not call at the Hotel Bedford again during my stay. I was a good deal amused when I was in Brighton, England during the same year to see how some people managed to reconcile cash and conscience. Everyone knows that Brighton is a fashionable watering place, frequented by all sorts of people, but the actual residents, many of whom are very wealthy, are supposed to be quite removed from the fashionable and other follies of the visitors from abroad during the season. The millionaires of Brighton, when I was there, were great church-goers, and at the same time were extensive owners in the stock of their railway, which brought so many visitors to the place. It was therefore for their interest that trains should run on Sundays, as well as on other days, but as such a course would clash with the religious professions. It was necessary that some plan should be devised by which a compromise could be effected between profits and profession, cash and conscience, for the idea of ever sacrificing interest to principle never enters the minds of those whose religion may be in their heads while it never reaches their hearts. The compromise between the duty and the dividends of the Brighton Railway shareholders was effected as follows. After a great deal of talk, pro and con, on the subject, the trains on Sunday were permitted to arrive and depart on the following conditions. But little noise and confusion was manifest, and there were fewer porters employed about the station than on weekdays, obliging the arriving and departing passengers not only to look after, but to lift their baggage, and as bell-ringing, that is, locomotive bell-ringing, would disturb the sanctity of the Sabbath, a bugle gave notice of the incoming and outgoing of the trains, but even this was not enough. It was expressly stipulated that the bugle player should play nothing but sacred music. Thus trains came in to Old Hundred, or similar psalm tune, and went out to the air of dismission, common to the hymn commencing, Lord, dismiss us with thy blessing. I do not know that this custom is still kept up in Brighton, but it certainly was so when I was there in 1845, 
and it was gravely recommended to others who favored a very strict observance of sunday and yet liked their dividends or were eager for sunday mails in common phrase it was whipping the evil one round the stump in a curious way it reminded me of the good old deacon in connecticut who was in the habit of selling milk to his neighbors all days in the week one sunday however his parson came home with him to tea and while they were at the table a little girl came in for a quart of milk the deacon was afraid of being scandalized in the presence of the parson and so he told the girl he did not sell milk on sunday the girl who had been accustomed to buy on that day as on other days was much surprised and turned to go away when the sixpence in her hand was too much of a temptation for the deacon who called out here little girl you can leave the money now and call and get the milk to-morrow during my journeyings abroad i was not wholly free from the usual infirmity of travellers viz a desire to look at the old castles of feudal times whether in preservation or in ruins but there was one of our party mr h g sherman who had a peculiar and irresistible taste for the antique he gathered trunks full of stone and timber mementos from every place of note which we visited and if there was anything which he admired more than all else it was an old castle he spent many hours in clambering the broken walls of kenilworth in viewing the towers and dungeons of warwick and climbing the precipices of dumbarton when travelling by coach sherman always secured an outside seat and if possible next to the coachman so as to be able to make inquiries regarding everything which he might happen to see on our journey from belfast to drogheda sherman occupied his usual seat beside the driver and asked him a thousand questions the coachman was a regular wag with general irish wit and he determined to have a little bit of fun at the expense of the inquisitive yankee as we came within eight miles of drogheda the watchful eye of sherman caught the glimpse of a large stone pile appearing like a castle looming up among some trees in a field half a mile from the roadside oh look here what do you call that exclaimed sherman giving the coachman an elbowing in the ribs which was anything but pleasant faith replied the coachman you may well ask what we call that for divil a call do we know what to call it that is a castle sir beyond all question the oldest in ireland indeed none of the old books nor journals contain any account of it it is known however that brian borhomi inhabited some time though it is supposed to have been built centuries before his day i'll give you half a crown to stop 
the coach long enough for me to run and bring a scrap of it away said sherman sure and isn't this the royal mail coach and i would not dare detain it for half the bank of ireland replied the honest coachman how far is it to drogheda inquired sherman about eight miles more or less answered the coachman stop your coach and let me down then replied sherman i'll walk to drogheda and would sooner walk three times the distance than not to have a nearer view and carry off a portion of the oldest castle in ireland with that sherman dismounted and raising his umbrella to protect him from the cold rain which was falling in torrents he marched off in the mud calling out to me that i might expect him in dublin by the next train to that which would take us from drogheda the railroad being then completed only to that point from dublin we arrived in dublin about five o'clock cold and uncomfortable but warm apartments and good fires were in waiting for us and in a few hours we had partaken of an excellent supper and were as happy as lords about nine o'clock in the evening the door of our parlor was opened and who should come in but poor sherman drenched to the skin with cold rain the legs of his boots pulled over the bottoms of his pantaloons and covered with thick mud to the very tops and himself looking like a half-famished weary and frozen traveller for heaven's sake let me get to the fire exclaimed sherman and we were too much struck with his suffering appearance not to heed it well sherman i remarked that must have been a tedious walk for you eight long irish miles through the rain and mud i guess you would have thought so if you had walked it yourself replied sherman doggedly i hope you have brought away trophies enough from the castle to pay you for all this trouble i continued oh curse the castle exclaimed sherman what do you mean by that i asked in astonishment oh you need not look surprised replied sherman for i have no doubt that you and that bog-trotting irish coachman have had fun enough at my expense before this time i assured him that i positively had not heard the coachman speak on the subject and begged him to tell me what had occurred to vex him in this manner why if you don't already know replied sherman i would not have you know for twenty pounds for you would be sure to publish it however now your curiosity is excited you would be certain to find it all out if you had to hire a post-chaise and ride there on purpose so i might as well tell you do tell me i replied for i confess my curiosity is excited and i am unable to guess why you are so angry for i know you love to see castles and that pleasure you surely have enjoyed for i caught a glimpse of one myself 
no you have not seen a castle to-day nor i either exclaimed sherman what on earth was it then i asked a thundering old lime kiln exclaimed sherman and i only wish i could pitch that infernal irish coachman into it while it was under full blast it was many a long day before sherman heard the last of the lime kiln in fact this trick of the irish coachman rendered him cautious in making inquiries of strangers one day we rode to donnybrook the place so much celebrated for its fairs and its black eyes for it would be quite out of character for pat to attend a fair without having a flourish of the shillelagh and a scrimmage which would result in a few broken heads and bloody noses near donnybrook we saw something on the summit of a hill which appeared like a round stone tower it was probably sixty feet in circumference and twenty-five feet high i would like to know what that is said sherman i advised him to inquire of the first coachman that came along but with a forced smile he declined my advice it can't be a lime kiln at any rate continued sherman it must be a castle of some description the more we looked at it the more mysterious did it appear to us and sherman's castle hunting propensities momentarily increased at last he exclaimed a man who travels with a tongue in his head is a fool if he doesn't use it and i'm not going within a hundred rods of what may be the greatest curiosity in ireland without knowing it with that he turned our horse's head towards a fine-looking mansion on our right where we halted sherman jumped from the carriage opened the small gate proceeded up the alley of the lawn fronting the house and rang the bell a servant appeared at the door but sherman knowing the stupidity of irish servants was determined to apply at headquarters for the information he so much desired is your master in asked sherman i will see what name if you please a stranger from the united states of america replied sherman the servant departed and in a minute returned and invited sherman to enter the parlor he found the gentleman of the mansion sitting by a pleasant fire near which were also his lady and several visitors and members of the family sherman was not troubled with diffidence being seated he hoped he would be excused for having called without an invitation but the fact was he was an american traveller desirous of picking up all important information that might fall his way the gentleman politely replied that no apology was necessary that he was most happy to see him and that any information which he could impart regarding that or any other portion of the country should be given with pleasure thank you replied sherman i will not trouble you except on a single point i have seen all that is important in dublin and its vicinity 
and in and about donnybrook there is but one thing respecting which i want information and that is the stone tower or castle which we see standing on the hill about a quarter of a mile south of your house if you could give me the name and history of that pile i shall feel extremely obliged oh nothing is easier replied the gentleman with a smile that pile as you call it was built some forty years ago by my father and it was a lucky pile for him for it was the only windmill in these parts and always had plenty to do but a few years ago a hurricane carried off the wings of the mill and ever since that it has stood as it now does a memorial of its former usefulness is there any other important information that i can give you asked the gentleman with the smile not any replied sherman rising to depart but perhaps i can give you some and that is that ireland is beyond all dispute the meanest country i have ever travelled in the only two objects worthy of note that i have seen in all ireland are a lime kiln and the foundation for a windmill upon resuming his seat in the carriage sherman laughed immoderately although he evidently felt somewhat chagrined by this second mistake in searching for ancient castles end of chapter forty five part two recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver b c